0: But in my experience, a lot of times during a diet break, there is no weight gain. Sometimes there is. I've even had clients lose weight when they increase their calories for the week. So we are going to, under research controlled conditions, we're gonna, we're tracking the the body weights of these subjects every day during the diet, but more importantly, during the diet break. So people like you can say, hey, if you're scared to go on a diet break for this week, just know research has showed that on average, you may gain blah, blah, whatever our research would show. So I think it's gonna be very practical for coaches and people that may want to adopt this.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the Esoteric Anomalies podcast. Today's guest is my friend, Dr. Bill Campbell, and I'm totally going to read off script here. So... Bill is a full-time professor of exercise science and the director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory at the University of South Florida. His master's and doctoral degrees were earned at Baylor University while serving as the coordinator of the Exercise and Biochemical Nutrition Laboratory. He joined the faculty at USF in the fall of 2007. As a researcher and author, Dr. Campbell has published more than 150 scientific papers and abstracts in academic journals related to sports nutrition and physique enhancement. In addition, he is a paid consultant to professional sport team organizations, sport entertainment corporations, and also is a litigation consultant and expert witness related to dietary supplementation. Dr. Campbell has published three books on sports nutrition, including the NSCA's Guide to Sport and Exercise Nutrition and Sports Nutrition, Enhancing Athletic Performance. So Bill and I met a couple years ago at the Phoenix ISSN conference in 2017, and he approached me, asked me what I did, and then brought up a refeed study that he was planning on doing. At first, the refeed study was supposed to be two separate days. Let's say Monday and Thursday, just to separate them out instead of running them consecutively. So my suggestion was, why not have them two days in a row? which funny enough, he eventually did. So it was five days of dieting and then two days of maintenance calories on the weekend. And surprisingly, the study had some fairly good results. This is something I implemented with my clients way before the study was even published. And it turned out that the refeed group retained more lean body mass compared to the group that didn't do refeeds. So thanks for asking my opinion on how to design the study bill. I take 100% full credit for it and I'm totally joking you deserve all of it. But I really want to get into this interview. Bill gave me 40 minutes of his time to discuss refeed studies, diet break studies, everybody's favorite macronutrient, which is protein, and a unique study called Does Dieting Make the Lean Fatter? Which we'll get into in this interview and much more. Here's Bill Campbell. I have a cool guest today. This is Dr. Bill Campbell. How are you, Bill?
0: I'm great. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast.
1: Yeah, so I've known Bill for a while. We met at the ISSN conference in Phoenix a couple years ago. He was talking about doing some refeed research, kind of asked my opinion on things, so we'll get into that in this podcast. But for people that don't know you, Bill, go ahead and introduce yourself. Start off as far back as you want.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I've got my PhD at Baylor University in 2007. My doctoral work was in exercise, nutrition, and preventive health. That was the name of my, my PhD program there. And after graduating in 2007, it was time to look for a job. And my wife said, I would love to live somewhere warm, where I don't have to shovel snow or have to warm up my car. So I said, OK, so where, where should we apply? So we applied to every school we could in Florida. I remember applying to some jobs in Arizona. South Carolina, so everywhere that it was conceivably warm, and I was very blessed to get an offer from the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, Florida, and here I am at this university 12 years later.
1: I think I was listening to a podcast with Lane and you, and before you even got into exercise science, you were, I think killing weeds yes. or doing like outdoor work. So how did you go from that? Yeah. To, uh...
0: So my undergraduate degree, well, let me just say this. I was born in Pennsylvania. I grew up on a farm. I was not a farmer. The, the, the farming had already left, but I grew up on a farm, had a four-wheeler, did a lot of hunting and fishing, all that stuff that that's just great for a young boy to do. And when it was time to go to college, I played basketball and I said, well, I got to go to a college where I could actually play basketball. So I went to a small division three college where I was able to play basketball. And I studied marketing because at, honestly, that was what I perceived to be an easy degree, And there was no way I was even thinking of taking like anatomy and physiology and all those things. They were too hard. So I got a degree in marketing, and then my first job out of my undergraduate degree was selling pesticides and herbicides. So basically the things that kill weeds and bugs, which unless you own a home, you could care less about that. Mm -hmm. And now I own a home, and I could still care less about it. But I do, I do find myself buying bug killer and weed killers, to, so that the house looks presentable. But definitely wasn't passionate about those things. I mean, I honestly could have cared less. Uh, every break I got, I was reading bodybuilding magazines, trying to learn about creatine and vanadyl sulfate and chromium and just if you named a dietary supplement, man, I knew everything about it and was so excited. So then a thought occurred to me. Why don't I actually do something that I like doing? <laughs> Amazing idea, right? Right. And we live in the one of the few countries in 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 the history of mankind where we actually have choices of what we're gonna do. So for whatever reason, I said I'm gonna go back to school, and had to do the necessary steps to get a a master's degree. But I didn't have any science courses, so I had to take. Biology, chemistry, anatomy, and physiology. So I spent a good two to three years doing odd-and-end jobs. I worked at a group home for a lot of that time. I worked as a residence hall director at a small university in Maryland called Frostburg State University. So just basically doing whatever I could to get these prerequisites to give me a new career. And I thought my career was going to be working for a supplement company. At least that's where I saw myself. So I ended up getting into a master's program. Uh, First of all, I was rejected by Colorado State University. I remember getting that rejection letter.
1: Um, It's never fun.
0: (laughs) No, no. And I remember Virginia Tech did not even return my email, which that's, I guess, even worse. (laughs) They They didn't extend the effort to even tell me I was no good. Um, so I ended up at Baylor University, and I studied under Dr. Richard Kreider and Dr. Darren Willoughby, and those are some of the icons in sports nutrition and muscle physiology. So I was very blessed to to get some just a, a great education and have some mentors that that I, I learned from. They started a Ph.D. program while I was there, it, uh, while I was a master's student. So I stayed on for my Ph.D., and said goodbye to killing bugs and weeds as a profession.
1: So you don't do that at all anymore?
0: I do it as a practitioner, <laughs> not as a professional. Okay. I just killed a lot of bugs the other day, actually.
1: <laughs> uh, still some uh, some throw out of it, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into to some of your research. I know you, um, at the ISSN conference in Dallas, you mentioned one called Dieting Makes the Lean Fatter.
0: Yes, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. So there are a few publications, some published studies in the scientific literature, where some authors are basically posing a potential problem. And at that conference, I took, I think, four of these studies. One of them was in twins. And the the, the idea is that if you're already a lean person, so you're not obese or overweight, you're, you're relatively lean, and you diet, you are more likely to experience future fat gain than you would be if you have never dieted as a lean person. So I look at those studies and again you said, you you heard that lecture and it wasn't just, you know, the, the, there was some pretty compelling data on the idea that if you're lean and you diet, you're more likely to be overweight in the future. And again, there could be a host of reasons for that, but I'm thinking the the entire physique athlete or the recreational physique athlete that that really is speaking to that whole population. That's the population that I like. I mean, I I'm, I would fit in that. I'm, I'm not obese, and yet I like to you know have periods of my life where I'm trying to get leaner. So that that really made an impression on me. So much so that I that, that I, I gave that lecture. And then the other part of that was okay. Well, what are if if this is true, what are some things that we can do as scientists? But more importantly, as people who want to look leaner, even though we're not overweight, to help mitigate this propensity for future fat gain.
1: I believe in the interview you did with Sohi Lee, you mentioned that that population, like when they lost muscle mass, that kind of caused a big desire to eat a lot. And it was muscle mass and not fat mass.
0: Yes. So they traced, they were tracing that hypothesis back to a couple studies. And one of those was the what I would call the famous Minnesota starvation experiment. And what they realized in in these males, again, these males were put on a semi-starvation diet and lost a lot of weight, and then they refed them after the the diet period is over, after the semi-starvation period was over. And what they found was they they had this autophagic response, which was basically another way of saying that is a overwhelmingly strong desire to eat that feeling persisted in those subjects until they were able to regain the lost muscle mass, not the fat mass. Um, In addition to that study, I was able to present on two or three other studies at that conference that where you heard me speak that basically said the same thing. So it could be, and again, I don't think there's enough data to say this is how it is, or that there's a consensus on this, but there is the belief that the loss of muscle mass is a driving force of an, an increased desire to eat. And as you know, I, uh, one thing I always teach my students is, when you when you have hunger, you you can win the battle. You can be hungry for lunch, you can beat hunger for dinner. You will lose that war over time. If you can't control hunger, there's only so much time that you can do that for. So if, if there's anything we can do to help this, insatiable desire to eat. And if it happens to be maintaining muscle mass while on a diet, great. Let's look into that. And it just so happens, how fitting is that for a physique population, for people who are interested in optimizing their physiques? Because what do they do? They lift weights.
1: Right. While well, they're super lean. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is going on there physiologically that makes the muscle mass cause this like autophagic response rather than the fat mass, since fat's kind of tied in with leptin?
0: Yeah. So... I honestly – I have no idea. I I wish I knew. What I do know is in what research has shown, and I've seen this in my own research, if you're able to maintain your muscle mass physiologically, you will help maintain your metabolic rate. So if your metabolic rate is maintained, obviously that sets you up for more success in the future as you reduce calories or you're you're going to resist this adaptive thermogenic adaptive thermogenesis response that you see with dieting. But as far as what is it about losing muscle that increases the drive to eat, I, I don't have a I I don't have an opinion on that. Um, I'm just not informed of that. I don't I don't know if that literature exists, and if it does, I'm uninformed of what that literature would tell us. Okay.
1: I guess this perfectly ties into diet breaks since you mentioned uh, these metabolic adaptations and metabolic rate slowing. So I guess we can go into the Matador study, which you know very much about, and then your own diet break study and the differences between those two and... yeah, I so draw comparisons
0: Let's talk about that matador study first and then before I get into my study if you could remind me of our conversation that we had at that conference I'd love to know what our conversation was mm-hmm. and then let's see how much our conversation how it played out into what we actually decided on in our in the diet break study Okay. First of all just generally speaking this if you if you want to research this stuff, the scientific literature, uses a, a concept known as um, intermittent energy restriction. That's like the, the term that you would search for to learn as much about this concept as possible. The unfortunate thing about this literature, when you use the word intermittent energy restriction, there's you know maybe may, maybe 20, 30 studies that I'm aware of in humans that fit under this umbrella. But those studies are all over the place. Some of them utilize, true intermittent fasting where one or two days a week there is no food intake for an entire day. Other studies will utilize a modified intermittent fasting design. Well, they'll reduce their calories by 75% or 50%. Others will do certain days of reduced feeding and not an in, uh, or certain times of the day. So it really gets, there's really no consistency in the scientific literature in terms of diet break. What the Matador study did to me was, it set up a a study design that I deemed as maintainable for a lot of people. And by that, I don't think there's a lot of people that are going to totally restrict their food intake for an entire day. Or if you look at the modified intermittent fasting data, are people going to reduce their calories by 75% for 24 or 48 hours? Sure, there would be some people, but I like studies that mimic a maintainable lifestyle so that if a diet, if you were to follow a given diet, could you see yourself or could I see a subject doing that for the next year? And the Matador study, I thought, did a great job of that. So what they did, they had two groups of, of people, and these were ob- overweight and obese males. They reduced the caloric intake of, of both groups by 33%. The one group, they said, you're, you're going to reduce your calories by 33% for 16 straight weeks. So it's a perpetual diet. And what we know is when that happens, this concept of adaptive thermogenesis becomes very apparent. And adaptive thermogenesis is basically your body fighting against you and your efforts to lose more weight. So your metabolism slows down. You lose muscle mass. You have all of these – your 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 hormones start to work against you. So, you, you again, your body is essentially fighting against you. So the Matador study had a second group, and the second group was – asked to diet for two weeks at a time and then take a two-week break where they would increase their calories. Diet again for two weeks, take a two-week break. So at the end of the study, they still dieted for the same amount of time, 16 weeks, but their entire intervention was about double the amount of time. It was 30 weeks versus 16. And the rationale was, will this frequent breaking from the diet help us help your body to not work against you as much. So that was kind of the idea behind the Matador study. And what they found at the end of the study was significantly more fat was lost in the diet break group during the weeks that they were dieting. They also maintained their metabolic rate to a significantly greater extent. And and it's important to note that when they controlled metabolic rate for muscle mass and fat mass, they they were able to maintain their metabolic rate. So those are two huge findings in that study.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That yes, it it appears as though taking breaks from your diet allows the times when you are dieting to be a lot more impactful. So it's a, 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 the way that you can look at it is the weight loss or the fat loss efficiency was significantly better. So that study was kind of unique. It's one of the few studies that didn't show that a break of some sort was no was no better than not breaking but this was designed in a different manner than all the other studies that we talked about the the other global intermittent energy restriction studies
1: i guess that inspired you to conduct a study of your own on diet breaks right
0: yes so we actually did two we we did we've done two versions of that the one that we presented at last year's ISSN. So this could have been the study that we talked about. We did a study that's commonly in our field referred to as a diet refeed study. So it wasn't a diet break, and I'll explain what we did in that study, and I can share the results because we presented this data. The study's just not published yet. We took males and females and we put them on the same diet Except, well, and when I say the same diet, at the end of the week, the average caloric deficit was 25%. But one group, we said, you're going to reduce your calories by 25% every day for seven weeks. The other group, we said, you're going to decrease your calories by 35% Monday through Friday. But on the weekend, you're going to go back up to maintenance. So that by the end of the week, their average caloric deficit was 25%, the same as the other group so in this study we were essentially allowing them to take a break from dieting every weekend and what we found was the group that had these diet breaks was able to main- significantly improve their maintenance of lean body mass So they lost about a pound of muscle, whereas the other group lost close to three pounds of muscle over the seven weeks. The other finding that we had that was very intriguing was their metabolic rate declined by 40 calories per day. The group that didn't have these weekend breaks, their metabolic rate that they lost was double. Their metabolic rate decreased by 80 calories per day. So what we were able to demonstrate in in that study was, yes, you're going to have to diet a little harder Monday through Friday, but if you increase your calories for two consecutive days our data re- would or did show that they maintain their muscle mass and their metabolic rates better.
1: Hmm. And why do you suspect that's happening?
0: So there's there's a couple reasons. I, I one of the main reasons is if you are in a caloric deficit, we can all agree that that's a catabolic response That's a catabolic state your body is in. So those subjects are catabolic by their diet, for seven straight weeks. What we're doing by increasing the calories for two days per week, we're allowing these people to not be catabolic for two entire days. Would they be anabolic? Well, they weren't increasing their calories above maintenance, but we're clearly breaking this catabolic environment that they're in by increasing their calories. So there would be one rationale. Another one would be that by increasing their calories, we're restoring glycogen levels. And now potentially their glycogen levels are more full so that the intensity of their workouts are going to be greater for the next day or two while they're resistance training. Mm. And in that study, all of our subjects, they they are doing a three to four day resistance training program per week. Uh, it's always supervised by my research staff. So we have a very controlled environment in terms of the workouts that they're doing.
1: Interesting. Yeah. After I saw that data, I started applying it to my clients with pretty good success. And I think you coach competitors, don't you? Or a few? I, I currently
0: know. Um, I have in the past, yeah. And and the competitors that I have coached were were uh, regional competitors, so not professional competitors. And always females. Mm-hmm. I'm, I I like working with females a lot more than males. So okay.
1: Yeah, I'm assuming uh, some of your students, like even Lauren Conlon, have they're big fans of utilizing the the consecutive refeed approach too, right?
0: Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember because I I consulted with a lot of the the big names in in our space about this study. I'll name some of them: um, Brad Schoenfeld, Lauren Conlon, Lane Norton, Paul Ravelia, Sohee Lee, and John Gorman sticks out because John Gorman was one of the voices who said. I love refeeds, but you should split them. Don't do Saturday, Sunday. Don't do it two days. Split them. Because now throughout the week, they're getting two bumps in interrupting this catabolic phase rather than one. So ultimately, we decided on the back-to-back because I thought it would have been better for subject compliance. But John had a good point, and maybe a future study would be to compare those two methods. Mm. Um, but he had good a good rationale as to why splitting them may be beneficial. But yeah, I, I and I think Lauren Collin was the first person who informed me of the potential value of refeeds. So, and that's, that's kind of how I how my research program evolves is conversations with people like you you know, some of these, like the the elite coaches in the space, just having conversations with them about what they're doing, what do they think might work, and then me, you know, investing a year of my life into, oh, well, let's test that.
1: You know, I think both ways actually would work. I remember when you approached me about this study a couple of years ago, you first suggested separating the two refeeds. Yeah. And I, I said, well, Eric Helms has always been a fan of having two consecutive days. And then recently, I don't know if you know Chris Barricat. he mentioned he runs the double refeeds because once you do like one refeed, you're, you get this metabolic bump and you get pretty hungry that day. So, I think from an adherence standpoint, having them do two days in a row, you know, because you get like really hungry and then you're still hungry the next day, you can have like even like a moderate refeed. Yes. Yeah. I mean,
0: so maybe if you do split it, you're fighting hunger to a greater extent on the single day. Right. That's interesting.
1: Have you experienced? I mean, even uh, running refeeds yourself. Do you notice you getting more hungry after doing a refeed, or no?
0: I can't say I I noticed that, but I'll I'll be honest. I really, I, I get hungry, Mm -hmm. but I I'm so insensitive to what happens in my body. Like as an example, I've I've weighed as much as two hundred and fifteen pounds. I've weighed as little as one eighty three. And I've heard other people say, "Oh it's so hard to get out of bed or I feel my joints hurting. I feel like the same person within thirty you know a thirty pound difference in my body weight so i for, I don't know uh, people have joked that I'm kind of dead inside okay I really just don't feel a lot different if I'm eating greater if I'm eating like on vacation and junk um mm. so I don't think I'm a good person to ask I'd say <laughs> your your physique. Athlete probably the people you work with are much more sensitive to what's going on.
1: Yeah, I should have clarified that. Maybe that made more sense in competitors being a very low body fat because once you're at that level, it's yes, it's it's really tough. I remember like refeeds were nothing. It's like I was eating food mostly carbohydrates and it would be like going into a black hole, like this this uh, void. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and if you're getting if you're working with people that like, that are contest ready, that's the uh, yeah, that's almost a diff. That is a different population. So my research focuses on helping people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle so we get people that are already good that you know that most people would say oh they look good but those people want to look even better but typically my research subjects are not stage lean they're not getting to that point point. and i know as competitors i competed myself when i was younger and in working with competitors yeah. There, there are triggers that happen. Um, lack of sleep, this, yeah, this falling off the wagon with hunger. Mm-hmm. Yes. That stuff starts to manifest, manifest itself at the extremes
1: of leanness. So this was separate from your diet break study, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So could you go into what you did for your diet break study?
0: Sure. Yeah. And just to separate the two, when we did the two-day refeeds, I'm referring to that as a refeed study. But if you want to get technical, it was they took a break for two days out of the week. Um, right. what,
1: diet breaks typically last a week to yes, two weeks. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: So, what I yeah, when I re- refer to a diet break study, you're taking a week off from dieting and going back to maintenance calories. So what we're doing now, and we started this, this particular diet break study this summer, and we'll finish our recruitment for this in the fall, and I need to thank Menno Henselmans, who is sponsoring this study for us. He's funding this study. And it's a really, really neat design. So again, the Matador study that we just talked about kind of was an inspiration in seeing what, what about this taking a week off. So we're taking females. So this is a female physique enhancement study. So we're taking two groups of females. One group we're, we're telling you will go on a diet for six straight weeks. And again, these, these are all resistance trained females. They're not overweight. They just want to get leaner. So we're reducing their calories by 25% for six straight weeks. They have to maintain their protein intake at 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass, or if you want to make the conversion, it's about 0.75 times their body weight. They also, every subject works out in my physique lab three days per week, and we track every set, every rep, and give them uh, post-workout protein. The other group, what we're calling the diet break group, is also dieting for six weeks. But every third week, we're telling them, stop dieting. Increase your calories to what they were before you started the study. So they're literally dieting two weeks, getting a diet break for a week. Dieting for two more weeks, getting a break for one week from the diet. And then they're ending with two more weeks of dieting. And so both groups are getting a... Six-week diet intervention. It's just that the diet break group is getting two breaks for a week. So their study intervention is eight weeks rather than six. And what we're looking at is body composition. So how much fat are they going to lose? How much muscle will they maintain? We're looking at metabolic rate. So hopefully all of our subjects will maintain their metabolic rate. We're measuring body water to account for those differences in body composition that's attributed to water changes And we're doing several psychological assessments as well, like the three-factor eating inventory, a hunger questionnaire. And that might be it. There might be another one, another psychological assessment that we're doing. And we finished 12 subjects or finished 11 subjects this summer. We're going to recruit about 40 more for the fall. The other neat thing we're doing is we bought scales for everybody. So during the diet break weeks, a lot of times I hear from my clients, Oh, I'm scared I'm gonna gain all this weight, which may be true. But in my experience, a lot of times during a diet break, there is no weight gain. Sometimes there is. I've even had clients lose weight when they increase their calories for the week. So we are going to, under research controlled conditions, we're gonna we're tracking the the body weights of these subjects every day during the diet, but more importantly during the diet break to see what's what what so people like you can say, hey, If you're scared to go on a diet break for this week, just know research has showed that on average, you may gain blah, blah, whatever our research would show. So I think it's gonna be very practical for coaches and people that may wanna adopt this.
1: The personality types are very interesting with clients because maintenance by definition, you're not gaining any weight, right? I mean, you may see like some water weights. Yes. But like for the scale to just spike three pounds, I mean, it's not body fat. Uh, Absolutely not. but you know that, and I know that right, they <laughs> but they, they don't I know
0: they can't appreciate it uh-huh. and it is funny, like and 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 I always tell people don't weigh your please weigh yourself every day and take a weekly average. you'll take out so much anxiety if you base your opinions on that approach. if you weigh yourself once a week it what happens on that one day if it happens to be a high day or a low day changes your whole your mental outlook on what you're doing for the next week.
1: Mm. What I found was like very interesting, especially like just browsing Instagram a lot. Is that people really care more about the number on the scale than? Rep- Rather than how they actually look, because generally uh, with like diet breaks, you look better because you're more filled out. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you'll drop cortisol will drop so you'll drop some water, and you end up just looking a little bit better. And even for in the gym, like it's easier to get a pump and stuff too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, sub- I guess the scale's more objective, right? Like I, maybe the mirror, the lighting looked worse or better. So I, I mean, I can appreciate that's why people are like that, but it is sad. The 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 and the number on the scale doesn't tell you how much muscle or fat.
1: Right. You have. So Mm -hmm. we did go over how you measured body fat and and body water about an hour ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you mind going over some of the the measurement tools that you use? Sure. Studies.
0: Yeah. So everybody's probably familiar with the the most popular body composition assessment tools that are out there. There's bod pod, there's DEXA, there's skin folds, ultrasound, underwater weighing, MRI. So you, you have a lot of methods. What we use in 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 the physique lab at, at my university and in my lab is ultrasound and skin folds Now i've had access i've either owned or have utilized all of the Various methods that I just mentioned except for mri i've never used that and that's mainly for muscle thickness I prefer skin folds or ultrasound as opposed to anything else especially for people that are physique conscious. The reason that I prefer it is as long as you have a skilled technician, what they're actually measuring when they use ultrasound or skin folds is you're actually measuring body fat, Bodpod, DEXA, underwater weighing. You're not measuring fat. You're measuring other attributes of the human body, and you're extrapolating fat from that. So without going into a long dissertation on why I prefer that, I just said I can track your fat loss with simple tools like skin folds. So for anybody who's trying to drive 50 miles and pay $100 to use a DEXA, when they could walk down the street and get a experienced technician with skin folds, save yourself the money and the time and get the skin folds. Mm -hmm. Just make sure the person testing you is skilled that they that they have experience in using it. So what we do is we use ultrasound in my research studies. And I also test everybody with skin folds and I share that with my clients because not everybody has ultrasound and it's always within a percent of each other. So they're practically the same thing, the same output values. So we will test seven sites on the body, six upper body, one lower body. So another advantage of that is if you're maintaining, if you're holding onto fat in a certain area of your body, we get that with, with, with my methods, the, the ultrasound or skin fold. We can tell where your body is more likely to drop fat faster or where it's maintaining fat more so. Again, it's, very, it's more difficult to get that data from a bod pod or underwater weighing DEXA. So it's much more precise in where in your body you're maintaining the fat mass. And the other thing is it's very convenient. It's not invasive and the thing you mentioned was we also assess body water that's very important because when you lose weight or gain weight you're not just gaining muscle or fat there's also a proportion of that that's water weight so by us measuring water we able to be more specific in how much fat and or muscle did you gain or lose and how much was attributed to water changes. Mm-hmm. And our machine allows us to differentiate between intracellular and extracellular water. That's not that important for the general population. But if you're a physique athlete getting ready for competition, that's... It's, it's, valuable information to have.
1: And none of these uh, methods are like 100%. Like if you want to be 100%, someone would have to kill you and- uh, Yeah, kill
0: you and then have really good scalpels to, to separate the fat completely.
1: Yes, yes. Right. To close this off, Every meathead's favorite macronutrient protein. Sure, yeah. Uh, why do you like it so much, and what are your recommendations for bodybuilders?
0: To me, I, I refer to protein as the anchoring nutrient, meaning that I will start any dietary plan with protein. I will set an amount of protein for that client, and even in our research studies, we do the same thing. You have to get this much protein. For the rest of your calories, personally— I don't care if they come from carbs or fat, you choose. If you like more breakfast foods, eggs, bacon, put more of your calories towards fat. So protein is an anchoring nutrient. It's the one nutrient that we know that helps maintain muscle mass in a caloric deficit. So that's been shown repeatedly. I mean, and and again, most of these, unfortunately, most of those studies are in overweight or obese populations, but even in lean populations, the few studies that exist When protein is kept relatively high, you maintain muscle mass and metabolic rate. In terms of the amount that I recommend, I prefer that people never go below 1.6 grams per kilogram of body mass or 0.75 times your body weight. So if you're dieting, don't go below that. The research would suggest that when you go below that amount, you will start to lose muscle mass. In terms of the upper range, there's really no benefit for gaining muscle past 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kg. Mm -hmm. But I'm aware of several studies, one of them being my own from my own lab, where higher protein intakes actually have reported greater losses in fat mass. So there's something with protein that as you get higher levels you are either going to not gain weight, or again, in several studies, you actually have lost fat mass.
1: Mm -hmm. And issue with getting protein a little too high is that it'll cut into your carbs and fats, which I mean, for like physique athletes that have to maintain performance in the gym, it could kind of hinder that, right? Um, I'm not aware of
0: data to suggest that. Um, I I do know I'm in the minority by recommending higher and higher protein intakes. I, I guess what you just said would be a concern for physique athletes, what, what I would suggest and what I've done is I have my, your maintenance calories set. So at a given protein, a given fat and a given carb, what if you just add in protein and don't decrease your carbs and fat, see what happens. It may be, and again, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And then don't do this again. It may be that they won't gain weight. And if their carbs and fat haven't been lowered, that their performance wouldn't suffer. So I, I would just say, take your own body or a, a a body of your clients that's willing to experiment, and just see what higher protein intakes do. See if it hurts their performance. See if they gain fat, maybe they lose fat, or maybe there's no change. One huge benefit to increasing the protein is you're you're really helping mitigate the hunger response. It's mm-hmm. the most satiating nutrient.
1: Right, and it has the highest thermic effect. Yes. I think it's- 25, 30%? Ex- yes, that range.
0: which is likely the reason why, at least in part, that the studies that, I, that I'm that i aware of that have been published where there has been a reduction in fat mass. Awesome.
1: Thanks so much for coming on, Bill, and kind of showing us around the campus. Currently, we're at uh, University of South Florida, and Bill was kind enough to show us the lab and some of the measuring tools and all that fun stuff. So, Bill, where can people find you? Oh. Um, on Instagram,
0: I my... Um, What do you say my address my it's at bill campbell phd his username (laughs) my username that's it is at bill campbell phd um i've been fairly active on instagram unlike years past so i would encourage you to follow me there
1: do you have a website
0: no website um, hopefully that's coming I, i would just say if anybody's interested in going back to school or if you're younger and just starting school i would i'm always looking for talent if you love physique science, this is the one lab in the, one of the only labs, maybe there's a few other ones, but this is really what my lab focuses on. We are all in on physique science.
1: Hmm. Any speaking engagements coming up?
0: Yeah, um, I'm speaking at a ISSN conference in Columbia in October. And then Sohi Lee and I are planning to do some talks early next year. We're going to do one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast. So I will definitely be promoting that on my Instagram as soon as we get dates solidified for that. But I'm very excited to, uh, to be working with Sohi on, on those talks. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on, Bill. Yeah, thank you.